Thanks very much for coming. My name's John Twitchin. Um, I'm comparing with an E today. Uh, it's not compare the compare, it's just <laughs> comparing. Uh, Charlie's at the front. Charlie is uh, from Footprint. Uh, there he is. And um, has set everything up and been communicating with you. So uh, thank you very much, Charlie. Um, we must say thank you very much to WSP for hosting us today. And Siva, C-E-V-A, Siva. Uh, for uh, jointly sponsoring and supporting the event. So thank you very much to uh, all of those and for you turning up, even though it's raining, which is really shocking, isn't it? Uh, all this rain. I'm not sure quite where it's come from. Um, just very briefly, we have, uh, we've got toilets sort of around the back of this block in the middle here, so you can go either way. Um, there's no fire alarm or fire planned, so uh, there shouldn't be any noises or reasons to, uh, to dash out. Um, and uh, we're, we're locked in for uh, uh, a short while and then there's a, a reward at the end um, uh, in the form of uh, uh, fruit-based drinks, uh, which may well have been through an alcoholic process, um, which is great news uh, for most of us, um, and some non-alcoholic processed fruit-based drinks as well, I'm sure. Um, so uh, I think that's all the intros. There's a Wi-Fi code, which is uh, on your sheets, but cleverly camouflage by having been printed over something else but you can see it there or it's on that um, shiny plaque on the uh, window ledge there um, so we'd love you to, to tweet there's a there's a hashtag which I think is at the top there um, which it would be great to use and uh, we like uh, engagement uh, podcast is being created as well I understand Charlie yeah um, which is good so you'll be able to watch back and uh, uh, and all the rest of it. So um, that's all good news. So just by way of introduction, uh, I'm personally very excited about uh, about this uh, event because it brings together a, a bunch of different issues, two particularly um, important issues uh, for my for my money. Um, and I think it's the first time, well, certainly I'm aware of that we've we've really had this kind of mix of of people talking about these issues in the same room. So. It's a fundamental of how cities work and also, you know, uh, why cities can and should be more sustainable, uh, more sustainable places to live, work and learn, and of course eat. That's a fundamental. Cities, towns, the areas around those cities and towns are increasingly congested. It's, it's definitely an issue. We all see it, um, particularly in the UK. Um, and the way we transport all the stuff we need, as well as probably I think we'd agree a lot of things that we probably don't need, um, but we still end up with. I've just cleared out a wardrobe. Well, I haven't. I've got to do that job. when it, It's been cleared out for me. I need to look through the stuff that I thought I didn't need or did need. Um, and it's all coming into sharp focus. <laughs> um, I think there's a few teachers. I'm not moving out. It's not on the lawn. Don't worry. Um, yet. yet. Um, so things like emissions, waste and packaging are all coming into sharp focus. It's not just about uh, congestion. It's not just about um, you know, uh, urbanisation, if you like, is a whole load of issues that really, I think, it's fair to say, are catching up with us after the last 20, 30, 40 years or so. Um, and thinking about emissions in particular, over the last 20 years, the number of vehicles on the road um, has increased by 40%. So that's quite significant. Um, the largest increase uh, was for light goods vehicles, and I think we'll see some interesting statistics around that uh, and the impact of it um, from two different perspectives during this afternoon's uh, session. Um, growth in HGVs is 15%, motorbikes have grown by 64% in number, not in length. Um, buses and coaches have fallen by 1%, uh, 
uh, over the last 20 years. And emissions from LGVs have increased. And overall emissions, obviously, the trend is down the last year or so, slightly kicked up. Uh, I think that's partly looking at the CO2 in particular, thinking about diesel and the transition to petrol and all of that. So all of those issues are in the melting pot. And technology, perhaps, is part of the problem. It's also obviously part of the solution. We're creating demand, just-in-time expectations, in my hand, please, right now, kind of stuff going on, especially in a, in a, in a city. Um, uh, but it's obviously part of the, the answer as well, uh, the uh, technology that's coming through, which we're going to touch on again today. So our, our adoption in the UK of technology is quite interesting. So we're the, we're the biggest online shopping uh, group of people uh, in the world, um, by number, not by percentage. Um, we've got, you know, we've really adopted technology. You're on, the, you're on the bus or the train, you're already doing your shopping, it's ready for you to collect or have delivered. Whole load of other issues around um, food uh, being, uh, are we right at the end then? That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> It was at the start. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, online grocery. Uh, yeah, so we, we're very happy to trust someone else to squeeze the fruit and veg and make sure it's okay and it's just right. Um, at the same time, we've got hybrid and, and EV technology coming through, um, evolving all the time. Um, just recently at the Nürburgring, a new lap record was set by an, uh, by an electric vehicle. Absolutely immense to watch um, on board. Uh, I think quite exciting, actually, and far from quiet. Um, I doubt the shopping would have been in too good condition at the end of it, and anything you'd eaten for lunch or breakfast, for that matter. Um, but what it does demonstrate for me is the technology is incredible. Uh, it's becoming desirable. It's demanded, uh, and therefore it's starting to become a norm and expectation uh, and everything that comes with that. And I think that personally, I think that's really exciting. And it's you know, true motor racing, if you like, that's, that's developed a lot of that technology around batteries and motors and energy recovery and efficiency of, uh, uh, of, of, of engines and motors. If you mix in AVs as well, autonomous vehicle technology, drone technology, we're in an entirely different dimension, almost literally. Um, again, very exciting, uh, could go very wrong, could go very right. Again, I think that's something we'll talk about this afternoon. So infrastructure in smart cities, think about smart cities, places to live, work and learn. They have to be seen as being designed for uh, people, operated and built for people, not being done to people. And that's a really, you know, I've spent 20 years looking at these sorts of issues and, and talking to local communities about change, about infrastructure development, about things that are happening, things that are important, what, what, what's important to those communities. Um, but dealing with that change management process. So I think we've all got um, quite an important role to play uh, in this, um, which is why I think it's quite exciting all these things come together. So that's why today's really important. You're going to have a chance to ask questions. Um, if you've got a question, put your hand up. If I think you might have a question and you haven't put your hand up, I will volunteer you. Um, just by sort of looking at you and kind of feeling, okay, I think they've got a question. So be prepared with a question. That would be great. Um, we really want this to be as interactive as possible. Um, and on that, on that basis, I will um, stop talking now. Um, I'm going to hand over in just one second to Rachel Skinner um, from WSP. Um, and uh, Rachel is going to talk about um, the likely changes, the things that are happening in, in transport and mobility, 
uh, and the impact that is and will be having um, on uh, food service and uh, the role that it, that, that the interaction it plays with increasingly smart and sustainable places where we live, work and learn. So Rachel, over to you, if that's okay. Okay, fine. Um, hello, thank you all um, for coming this afternoon. Welcome to our Chancery Lane office, um, for those of you who haven't been here before. So I'm, I'm Rachel Skinner. I'm an executive director here and the head of our development business, which is the piece of our business that includes a lot of our planning and advisory colleagues, so lots of transport planners, modellers, uh, logistics specialists, um, economists and all sorts besides. So I'm going to try and rattle through um, the slide set as quickly as possible to give a bit of time for questions at the end. Um, as you just heard from John, what I'm going to be thinking about and talking about is sort of future mobility, new mobility, if you like, um, and some of the considerations that we can see in terms of what it might mean, what it might look like and so on for, for the world in particular of, uh, of food logistics and so on. But not exclusively that. It's going to be quite a wide whistle-stop tour. So... The concept that change is coming is something which actually I think over the last two or three years we've become a lot more familiar with in terms of this whole transport mobility space. When I first started talking about some of the stuff I'm going to mention today, um, I was very much the crazy lady in the corner. I was very much the fun, I'm not kidding. It was very much kind of, it's all very lovely, but when is she going to stop talking and when are we going to get serious about what's really happening? It's amazing what's happened in just a couple of years in this space. So things like, okay, there's a populist view on life. The Economists had a couple of covers um, talking about things like Uber World, the fact that this really is a transformational point in terms of what's actually going to happen to the world of transport and systems, and in particular the roads, um, and what that means in terms of reshaping cities. Um, we've also, there's all sorts of technical work going on in terms of predicting what sort of scale of change we're talking about. For example, um, there was a study by TRL, um, almost a year ago now, which started to predict the level of trip making that might be made by autonomous ride-sharing type vehicles um, over the next few years, indeed just up until 2025. It's a much bigger number than you might think. Um, the motor manufacturers are also getting in on the act, where just a few uh, years ago it would be all about just selling more vehicles. All of a sudden now they're beginning to realise they need to change their language, they need to be talking about things to do with cities and placemaking and routes and how they work and so on, if they're actually going to be socially and politically acceptable in this world to come. We would never have seen language like that a couple of years ago, but here we are, January of this year, we've got the chief exec of the Ford Motor Company and many of his um, equivalents all over the world saying things like the quote on this slide here. So why does it actually matter? Um, in terms of this sort of scale of mobility change, the scale of the problem, I guess, that we're trying to get at and so on, the potential for benefit... Right now, in the UK, road safety and accidents cost us £35 billion a year as a country. 90%-ish of those accidents, depending on how you cut the data, are basically caused by driver error. That's a pretty large proportion, no matter how you look at it. Congestion, we've just heard about congestion, how that's growing. That costs us £30 billion a year. Air quality, a whopping £54 billion a year in terms of health impacts and so on there. Half of that, roughly speaking, is down to road transport. Those are all the negatives, the things we might want to fix. In addition to that, if we start to put together our places and our transport networks and so on in a much, much smarter way, we can start to reuse space in different ways. We can start to regenerate and develop new areas completely differently. So there are actually placemaking, land value benefits in there as well. Who knows what those are worth? Because actually we've not been in this space before in quite the same way. But there's no doubt there's an upside of many, many billions sitting there as well. So there's all kinds of reasons why we want to attack this problem, and the things I'm about to talk about in terms of what's actually changing all play a part in terms of making those changes. 
I'll come back to this quote right at the end as well, but to me, it doesn't matter which sector of, you know, which industry we look at and so on, it's all about understanding what changes lie ahead and actually figuring out, okay, so what's our response? It doesn't matter whether we're looking at food logistics, whether we're looking at energy, whether we're looking at, I don't know, wider retail stuff, whether we're looking at residential, whether we're looking at the transport network operators. If you know what you want, you've got a much better chance of getting what you want. If you don't know what you want and you just roll with the punches, the chances are you're going to end up with the bits that everybody else didn't want in the grand scheme of things. So hopefully some of what I'm about to talk about might help to sort of start to form some of those thoughts in terms of directions of travel and so on that, that some of you might want to start thinking about taking. So what's really actually going on in terms of policy and trends? Starting with some of the policy and strategy side of things in this transport space, there is a whole raft, and some of them are listed here, but by no means all, of new uh, policy documentation, other sort of studies and similar emerging from all over the place, whether you look at Bayes or DFT, whether you look at all sorts of different, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, national government flowing down through regional and local government organisations, that the policy direction, the strategy that's being set is absolutely all around some of, the, um, some of the agenda that we're talking about here. It's all to do with capturing the benefits of this transport and mobility change. It's about clean growth, clean air, all those kinds of things, but also wrapping in some of the challenges that come with it around some societal change and so on as well. So there is absolutely a very, very clear direction of travel that's becoming more and more clear all the time in terms of this piece. And this future of mobility piece is a really important piece of the jigsaw. So the way we see it, at least, and the way an awful lot of other people around the, the sort of transport industry are seeing this, is that there really are there are four key areas of change going, change going on right now, and there's a fifth piece that we need to really get thinking about seriously if we're going to actually generate some benefit. So just to whiz you around very, very quickly, and I'll come on to this in a bit more detail in a second, there's a big piece around connected networks changing. This is the piece around data and the way that vehicles and people and the infrastructure itself is starting to generate more information, more pieces of data, how that data is used to feed back around the loop to create a truly connected system. Masses of change in that space. Automated, the driverless bit, the bit around the clever vehicles being able to start to move themselves increasingly. Electric, the fact we already heard about electric cars and so on, it's also about electric freight, it's about all sorts of other alternatives that might exist beyond petrol and diesel, and the fact that we really are on the road to those changes now. Fourth piece is around shared, this idea that at the moment we often perceive we need to own our own car, we need to own our own one of these things, often because we don't have other alternatives. But actually, in the round, we have a generation of people coming through now who are far more willing to share. There are far more business models out there that actually rely on the fact that people don't need to own all these assets themselves. They don't need to actually physically control them all themselves. And that plays a part here, as we'll see in just a minute. The fifth bit that sits in the middle, and I often sort of describe it as kind of the glue, is the business model that actually makes it all stack up. At the moment, we've got loads of pilots and trials going on in some of these spaces, a few examples where people are really beginning to use things in earnest. But actually, unless we can figure out a way the whole thing goes together and people actually make the necessary returns from it in terms of the different revenue streams, how you capture that, how you do something with it over time, it will probably not move in the best possible way towards being actually a genuine system that really works. So just coming on a little bit to sort of what that means in the real world, what's actually going on now, all of these changes affect both our existing places, our existing routes, everything that's already out there now if you look out of the window in the rain, um, but also actually they also are going to affect everything that comes forward in future, so future places, future routes, future ways of working and so on. So in terms of what's actually happening now in the connected and automated space, 
Um, you've got all sorts of different types of vehicles emerging. So you've got the sort of the specialist pods, which are very, very highly automated. They're able to do almost everything themselves in terms of deciding how to move around. Tending to be quite slow speed at the moment because fast plus really complex is, is still quite difficult. But in the grand scheme of things, you've got all sorts of things beginning to rumble all over the world in that respect. You've got some logistics trials going on, uh, top right, for example. You've got freight trials going on in terms of uh, connected and increasingly automated heavy vehicles. And you've also got the, the, the sort of the, the faster model, I guess, if you like, the sort of the Tesla type model and similar, which is much more around vehicles that can move with the main flow of traffic already, but aren't necessarily quite as fully automated as those ones that can go more slowly. So you've got a bit of a transition point already beginning to happen. These are all things that are real, they're out there, they're beginning to happen as we see. So there is very little doubt that we're on that path towards an increasingly connected set of systems and an increasingly driverless or automated set of uh, ways of working in terms of all different types of vehicles. Um, you've also got the drones, you just mentioned that as well as we're going through. This is kind of a slightly late comer to the party, again, the slightly wacky idea, but actually increasingly you know, generating some interest. There's new interest in, in the tops of taller buildings in terms of what that space might actually start to be used for. There's also increased interest in pavements and how they get used in terms of these different vehicles running around. So again, these are all real things that are out there very much at the trial stage right now very much of the trial stage, but potentially pieces that could actually change the way the networks work, the way we move things around and so on in future. Electrification, um, I could have put any number of different different logos and, and so on, different, different types of fleets in, on this screen here, but essentially you can see all over the world, all sorts of different manufacturers, all sorts of fleet owners and so on, starting to move towards a proportion of their fleet and increasingly all of their fleet turning to electric. So sometimes these are trials, but actually in the main, this is much more established now. This is probably at the front of the queue in terms of the different changes that are going on. It's not just about vans, it's not just about cars, it's also about bikes and all sorts. So all sorts of different electrified pieces of the fleet coming through. Um, in terms of where we are in the UK around that electric fleet, last year's data, this is what this slide shows, there is a really large growth in some of the subcategories of electric vehicles that are now out there and on the network. Admittedly from a small base, but if you look at some of these figures for a single year change, they really are quite significant. And all the indications are that this year actually is very, very similar. There is a lot of public demand out there. There is a lot of appetite in terms of wanting to get away, particularly from diesel, but also from petrol where it's possible. So I think there's no doubt that this is a trend is really going to be something that we need to be thinking about. So I guess in terms of leading on to some questions to think about, I think if you're not already, I think there's definitely a really important piece to think about in terms of what does this trend towards electrification mean for the industry and the fleets of vehicles that might be out there? What does it mean for infrastructure, for energy supply, for timings and that kind of thing? Because this is very much real right now and it's something which I think we can expect to see on a quite a steep curve going forward. In terms of the shared piece, um, there's a terrifying statistic out there that a typical car, an average car, is actually stationary 95% of the time. It's completely ridiculous. So 80% of the time, on average, a car is parked outside your house. This includes second cars, third cars, and so on as well. And about 15% of the time, on average, cars tend to be parked outside a workplace. And the rest of the time, of course, it's you know outside leisure and shopping and all sorts of other places that you might want to visit and so on. But that is the most ridiculous statistic when you think about it. Because actually, what have we created, not just in the UK, but all over the world? Giant car parks all over the place. Giant car parks, whether it's sort of linear ones alongside roads or whether it's, you know, if you think about small communities and the fact they're basically covered in cars. And then you get to the real car parks and so on as well, beyond that in some of the city centres and so on. It's actually completely ridiculous. So this idea that we can get towards a more shared resource, whether we're talking about cars or vans or whatever it might be, is definitely something of interest. So we obviously all know about Uber and the impact that's been having, not just in London but elsewhere as well. 
Top right is the um, easy car share scheme being launched by Stelios. Um, so this idea that you can sort of, you know, sort of make use of a vehicle as and when you need to, rather than having to own it all the time. There's some interesting things in the mobility as a service space. So, for example, the WIM app has recently been launched in Birmingham, which is intending to sort of create much more seamless journeys and ticketing and so on in terms of how people can actually move around. And, and increasingly, things like even shared use of bikes. You'll all be familiar with the, with the stuff you see out on the streets in London and elsewhere now, where there are all these, all these fleets of bikes appearing all over the place. This, again, is something which is it's now. It's already happening, and we can only expect it, expect it to carry on. And I say again, the reason I think why people at the moment own some of these vehicles is simply because at the moment they don't have good alternatives. If we get to a point where the vehicles can start to move themselves around without necessarily needing drivers inside them, you get to a whole different space in terms of what you could actually share. So the prize, if we get it right, and this kind of applies at all different levels, whether you're looking at UK level or local, cities and suburbs, or urban or rural situation, the prize, coming back to those big costs I showed at the beginning, is if we can get the connected and the automated pieces right, we end up with a much, much safer network. That's £35 billion number of current cost to the UK. We, might, we won't get rid of all of it. I think that's unreasonable. But even if we could eat half of that cost, that would be a huge benefit to the UK and indeed the local level networks and so on that operate. If we can get the, the connected and automated pieces working, but ideally with the sharing as well, you potentially start to attack congestion. If you don't get the sharing bit right, you actually end up potentially incentivising even more travel and even more congestion, which is not very smart. If we can get the electric piece right, then we can eat into the cleaner air figure, that really large £54 billion number. And the better places bit, which is the fourth bit, kind of relies on all of those things working together. Because actually, as I say, you can start to reshape the way the places work and actually the way that you know, you're bringing, whether it's people or goods or services, whatever it might be, into those centres and using them and so on. You can reshape the whole way that works and generate a whole load more, more value. It's really important, though, to remember that middle piece, which is essentially the way the money flows. And I think there's some really interesting work going on at the moment to start to think about that, but it's very, very early days. And the people who get that right first will be the ones who are in a really, really good place. So that, I guess, leads me on to all sorts of thinking about relevant trends to, I think, well, I hope at least many of you in the room today. I suspect we will find, as a result of some of these things beginning to happen, that we'll end up with more pedestrianised areas in lots of our urban centres, because we can. Now, some of that will be full pedestrianisation. Some of it might be much more flexible pedestrianisation because we can get much more clever about how we use the space over the course of the day and so on. That could have an upside. That could have a downside. It all depends on how you actually put it together, how we use the space. I suspect we're also going to see, in terms of curbside value, the recognition of that curbside and the value that it actually brings to cities in particular and some of the urban spaces and how that moves around over the day. The idea that you don't just have a bit of curb and it's always just got a sort of double yellow line painted on it. Actually, there's some really interesting stuff in that space around how you might adapt that over the course of 24 hours or through the year and that kind of thing to take best advantage of how you get more value out of that curbside space, whether it's to do with deliveries, whether it's to do with people getting there, all sorts of different things. I also think it's likely we're going to see a move towards more of a sort of a pay-as-you-go trip-making model because it only makes sense, really, that actually if we're going to start to share, if we don't have to buy the assets up front and so on, actually you would essentially buy into mobility over time as something just as we might buy a mobile phone bundle or a TV bundle and that kind of thing. You can really start to see how that starts to sort of come into play in terms of how that flow of revenues and so on actually works. So there's loads of stuff in that space, I think, in terms of the way that urban centres in particular will change, but also the rural areas as well. Because, of course, people are living everywhere, wanting to move around between different places and so on, and all of these changes will apply all over the place. There's a really important point, that I think, just to sort of bear in mind in all of this, around something we need to make sure we keep, 
it's very easy to get carried away with the technology and get really excited about all the sort of shiny stuff that's coming through. But actually, to me, there's, there are a couple of really key pieces that actually we'd want to keep almost at all costs, really, which is basically to do with walking and cycling. Because actually, we do want to keep encouraging healthy lifestyles and active lifestyles and so on. And when you think about the pattern of travel and trip making and so on that most people actually sort of go with in terms of their everyday activity, most trips are really, really short. And at the moment, we're not very efficient in terms of how we actually do that. And we want to obviously become better at how we do that and more healthy in how we do that and so on. So all of that change in terms of technologies needs to be sort of borne in mind, I suppose, against a backdrop of something where you wouldn't want to lose that policy direction. We wouldn't want to generate more of a health impact by encouraging people not to walk, not to cycle, all that kind of thing. That's really tricky in the grand scheme of things to get right because you can sort of add everything to your wish list, but how do you actually make it work in, in an urban situation in, in terms of different users of the centre and that kind of thing? It's really, really difficult. So in terms of, I guess, the sort of food logistics side of things, some other things that probably we should be thinking about in the round, some bigger trends that are actually going on, we need to bear in mind that the UK is changing. We've got, we've got potentially, we've got an ageing population overall. We've got changes in some of the cities. We've got changes in some of the more rural areas. This map happens to show sort of London and, and wider surroundings and so on. And of course, we, as, we can, as we would expect, you can see that London, generally speaking, has a slightly younger population than average. So there's a question there about what does that mean in terms of London? What does it mean in terms of other areas? What does it mean in terms of the surroundings? What does it mean for the further flung centres and that kind of thing? How will these needs vary? What does that mean in terms of retail, specifically food logistics, in terms of needs, in terms of what's actually going to be happening? There is a very definite shift going on and we can expect to see that carrying on, but in the context of the overall population gradually getting older. Um, in terms of digital connectivity as well, it's just worth bearing in mind that a lot of what I've been talking about there relies on the fact that we will be better connected than we are now. In reality, we're quite fortunate where we are here at the moment in the middle of London because actually we are pretty well connected. We've done quite well on things like um, sort of 3G networks and so on. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, there is a very long way to go. We certainly haven't got 4G coverage across everywhere and anywhere at the moment by any means. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, we're already busy talking about 5G and beyond. But actually, in reality, we need to start to fix some of the stuff that, you know, we need to just get everybody else up to, up to a certain base level before we get too excited about 5G, 6G, 7G and all the rest of it. And so actually, there's an awful lot of stuff that we need to be thinking about so that actually the right solution come through in the right places and actually they work locally as well as at a, at a grander scale I guess. Um, in terms of timescales, coming towards the end here now, in terms of timescales it's really difficult to predict exactly when all of these things are actually going to happen. This, this data is actually a little bit old now so this comes from a report that was uh, back in 2015 a sort of a finger in the air in terms of when might some of these trends start to take off. I think if the red line is kind of where we are now there's no doubt that the, the decrease in that sort of, that sort of I guess, teal-coloured line, if that's what it is, that's the non-connected vehicles moving around the network of all types. So it's cars and vans and, and, and freight and so on. So clearly we started out some years ago with the whole network that really wasn't very well connected anyway to other vehicles or to the network itself and so on. As and when new vehicles are entering the fleet, the vast majority of brand new vehicles now are connected in some way, whether it's to the manufacturer or whether it's to other systems and that kind of thing, and we can definitely expect to see that carrying on. So I think that non-connected proportion will come down probably faster than that curve shows. At the same time, the level of connectivity of those new vehicles and so on, the purple line is obviously going to rise to sort of compensate for that. And at the same time, we're going to see these increased levels of automation coming through as well. So the blue and then the uh, sort of mustard-coloured lines are showing when that might start to happen. In reality, I think all of that actually compresses to the left. Things are happening much faster. 
than people might have thought even a few years ago, like I say. So I guess to me that brings out lots of questions around what does this mean for kind of programming and investment and how could this change customer and consumer behaviour and especially the, sort of the first and the last mile, how are people actually going to be moving around? What does it really mean in terms of how they get to and from different facilities? What are they going to expect at their door? What are they going to expect when they get to a town centre and so on? Um, and overall, how do you, in terms of a portfolio investment and so on, think about how you might reduce risk? How do you play the game? How do you ride the right wave in terms of what's actually happening? There are some really, really big questions in all of that, that actually those who think about it and start to sort of, you know, move things in a certain direction might well find that that's a pretty timely move, given that all of these other things are actually already underway. I guess um, just in sort of coming, coming to the end, really, I think I've already mentioned this, but I think there's one really important point to make here, and it's about technology not being something we should be using for its own sake, it's actually something we need to be using in terms of actually enhancing lifestyles, quality of life, that kind of thing, generating meaningful long-run outcomes, whether those are commercial or social, whatever they might be. There's all kinds of reasons listed on the left-hand side there why you might be thinking about you know, encouraging some of these kinds of changes. Certainly that's what's going on at the national and, and regional and local level government side of things. But it's also then about turning it around and thinking, okay, so what does that mean in terms of you know, what's our own response going to be to these kind of things. Why do we want to get involved with some of these things? What might we start from? But it's also about thinking about what others are likely to be doing in that space and how it might all actually fit together. Because clearly, if you get all of that right in one big bundle, it, the whole thing becomes easier for everybody. Um, so, so, you know, do we all un do we understand what's actually going on in terms of those policy decisions? Do we understand what's likely to change and when and that kind of thing? And if not, in terms of understanding those drivers, it would certainly be worth digging into that and starting to think about what that means in terms of the mobility side of things. So our approach in terms of how to think about this, and this is something we're doing with quite a number of clients already, is to figure out essentially where you are now, understand the appetite for change. So has anything I've just said there sparked off a thought in terms of, oh, yeah, that's something we could be doing more of, or I need to find out more about that and so on. What's the actual appetite to, to make change quite soon? Who do you need to collaborate? That's kind of the third step. Who, who needs to be in the sort of tent in terms of those collaboration partners and so on? So that might be everything from local government, national government, through to other stakeholders in the area, other operators in similar spaces, co-professionals, whoever it might be. How can you adapt what you've already got? It's clearly not a case of, you know, sort of reinvesting in absolutely everything all at once. How do you adapt what you've already got? How do you adapt the networks? How do you adapt the fleets, that kind of thing, in order to actually start to make these gradual changes? And then fifth step really is, is there something that's going to happen in a local sense or in a sector sense or an industry sense or something that might act as a bit of a springboard to really get some of these things changing fast? And if so, fantastic, take advantage of it. Obviously don't miss it when that sort of moment actually happens. Um, and if not, if you can't see something, actually think about what might you create that might create that springboard to actually generate some of these changes because there is no doubt that this direction of travel is something that is, that is reasonably well set. And you can consider that across all of those five areas that I've been talking about all the way through. And that actually is turning into quite a useful way of kind of specifying and, and I guess understanding what's actually really going on and what you might want to do in terms of a strategy going forward. So in closing, I come back to the same quote again, really. To me, it's all about actually having a bit of a plan, even if you can't actually get every single piece of it done. If you know what you do actually want, you can at least start to baby step towards it, whereas you can't do that if you simply haven't got a plan in the first place. So if you want to find out more, there's a couple of white papers that we've been writing over the last few years. You're obviously very welcome to find those online, or we can, we can send copies or whatever we want to do. But it's not so much that from a point of view of trying to sort of plug this to you as the only answer so on it's much more about just trying to sort of, I suppose spread the word in terms of actually what's 
what's really going on out there, what does it really mean, what's going on internationally, what's going on locally, you know, what, what counts, what doesn't, what do you need to be thinking about, and so on. So I would hope there might be something useful in what I've just said there that might make you start to think about some of these things a bit differently. As I say, you're welcome to, to have a more detailed look or ask questions in a minute and so on, and I think we've also got my colleague Giles on a panel in a second to, to carry on that kind of conversation. But in the meantime, thank you very much. So next up, we have got... Uh, we've got Bruce uh, McVean. So, uh, Bruce, here we go. Come across, Bruce. Uh, is the, Bruce is the Strategic Transportation Group Manager at City of London Corporation. Um, and uh, you've been, it's a, it looks like you've been working for 15 years, which is great. Well done. <laughs> um, around uh, social, economic, and environmental benefits of safe and attractive urban environments. Um, and uh, oh, spend some time with Cave and other people like that. So I'll yeah. leave you to uh, go for it. All right, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so uh, I just wanted to, I guess, before we get into the next panel, to uh, provide a bit of uh, more context uh, for why uh, we're here today and why these discussions we're having uh, are so important um, by just going into a bit of uh, depth into the uh, challenges and opportunities uh, that we face in the square mile uh, in terms of transport. Um, so, uh, as John said, I manage the strategic transportation team. Uh, at the, we like to call things like groups at the city and give ourselves grand titles. There's actually only five of us, but I suppose it is a, it is a group of people. Uh, the strategic transportation team, and, and our job is to kind of um, do exactly what we're doing today. Think about the uh, challenges that we face now, the challenges that we'll face in the future, uh, and how, uh, how transport uh, needs to change and how the use of our streets needs to change uh, to uh, address those. So uh, much of this isn't specifically freight related, um, but hopefully uh, will help set the scene for the discussion uh, afterwards. Uh, so we're just on the edge uh, of the city here. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, um, but it's quite a unique uh, place. Uh, we have 450,000 people coming to work in the city every day, so that's in uh, one square mile, so incredibly dense uh, commercial environment, but we only have 8,000 uh, residents. So that makes some things easier in transport terms. It's easier to uh, find places where you can do overnight deliveries, say, without uh, disturbing people's uh, sleep, uh, but obviously uh, it places huge pressure on our transport networks, and all of those people living and working there uh, want a sandwich at lunchtime uh, or sushi at lunchtime, want to go to a great restaurant and eat uh, fresh, locally sourced uh, food uh, in the evening and still need to get uh, paper for their um, printers. So logistics, delivery, servicing, absolutely crucial to the success uh, of the Square Mile as a place to live and work uh, and to visit. Um, and one of the other interesting things about the city is it's in a kind of constant... Um, state of flux. There's always uh, a, you know, a number of buildings being knocked down, being rebuilt, uh, change of use uh, and everything else. So you know, if you, if you uh, drop down in there, even kind of, uh, if you haven't been for 10 years, it will feel like a very different uh, place and look uh, quite different, certainly uh, in the east of the city where most of that uh, big change is happening. But one of the things that hasn't really changed, um, the time lag, uh, that hasn't really changed is the street network. Uh, so we still have, uh, in many places, the streets we had uh, before 
um, or, or, or immediately after the Fire of London. Uh, when the Fire of London happened, of course, the city was kind of rebuilt in its very organic uh, sense and the attempt to impose a more formal city plan on it uh, didn't happen. Uh, so we have, um, you know, there's lots of benefits that come from that, but lots of challenges uh, too, and not least uh, the challenge of how we decide how to fit all the different and new uses uh, and old uses uh, onto those streets uh, when we can't make them any wider uh, and we can't really create uh, any new ones, uh, certainly not for vehicles uh, as well. So this is kind of the principal challenge we have, one of the things that makes transport planning such a fun uh, and interesting profession. Uh, you are all free to change careers at any point, it really is uh, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> is, um, is, yeah, is, is how we look at all those different uses, all of them perfectly legitimate uses of that space. Uh, everybody wants their own share of it. Uh, some people shout louder uh, for their share of it uh, than others. Uh, and our challenge is to decide uh, who gets to use that space, uh, how much of that space they get, uh, and when they get to use it uh, as well. And it's everything uh, from moving vehicles around, moving people on bikes around, uh, moving people walking around the city around uh, safely and easily, but increasingly, uh, as Rachel was alluding to, this kind of place-making agenda uh, and, and creating uh, streets that are uh, places, uh, and certainly in the City of London, most of our public space is on the street and will remain uh, to do uh, remain that way for a long um, as well. And, and one of the interesting things when you look at how we um, how we deal with that kind of competition is that there isn't really a quiet time on our streets uh, in the city. So these are uh, this is a 24-hour count of uh, motor vehicles on the streets, and you'll see with the black line there for, that from about um, six, seven o'clock in the morning uh, through to midnight, we have about the same number of uh, vehicles on our streets. The type of vehicle changes, so the freight uh, and the deliveries tend to happen uh, in the morning uh, and through the day and then drop off in the evenings. In the evenings, it's much more uh, cars uh, and taxis um, serving the evening uh, economy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not like there's no, there's no vehicles on the street at yeah. kind of 3 o'clock in the morning. So we talk a lot about uh, retiming, um, but it's not like there's a load of spare capacity in our street network at midnight uh, that we can suddenly shove all of these uh, delivery vehicles uh, into. Uh, the kind of good news, I guess, though, is that we have seen quite significant uh, reductions in the number of motor vehicles on our streets. So overall, uh, between now and 1999, <laughs> about 50% uh, fewer uh, vehicles. And that reduction has happened pretty much uh, across the board, uh, whether it's cars and taxis, uh, vans and lorries, we've seen reductions. We haven't seen a big increase in, uh, in um, light goods vehicles, uh, unlike lots of other places, uh, motorcycles as well. Uh, and the one thing that has grown uh, a lot uh, and kind of exponential uh, growth is, uh, is cycling, uh, which again, you know, anybody who's familiar with London, that won't come as a great surprise. Um, but of course, all those people cycling bring new demands and pressure on those streets. They want, understandably, uh, I am one of those people, I want it as well, uh, safe uh, and attractive streets to cycle on, which often uh, in most places, certainly on busy city streets, means they need their own space uh, that is protected uh, away um, uh, from motor vehicles. And this has perhaps been the biggest, most recent change uh, to how uh, London's uh, streets uh, function and how they look uh, and feel uh, and we'll continue to do so as we go forwards. Um, and we've recently, so we're writing a transport strategy at the moment that's looking at, at what needs to change over the next 25 years. And we started that process by asking people what they thought about the city's uh, streets. And one of the questions we asked was, well, two questions was, 
Um, do you, how, what do you think about the amount of space that given, that's given to people cycling on our streets and what do you think about the amount of priority that's given to people cycling? Uh, and what this graph shows is that, uh, so we have to also ask them what mode of travel they use to get around. And uh, unless you um, travel in a private car, a taxi or on a motorbike, uh, almost 60% of respondents uh, said that uh, people cycling should have, be given more space on our streets and should be given more priority on our streets. So it's not just the people who ride bikes uh, who are asking uh, and recognise the need for streets to change in that way. Um, so I've talked about motor vehicles, I've talked about uh, cycling, but the main way that people travel around the City of London is on foot. Uh, and this is, again, those 24-hour counts. Um, Everything down here is the motor vehicles, the kind of brown, orangey-brown is, uh, is, um, is cycles, uh, and the blue is uh, people walking. So you'll see, in terms of uh, numbers, absolutely huge, but also quite peaky. Uh, so we have uh, those morning and evening peaks of people, uh, in particular, walking to and from public transport. Uh, lunchtime peak, as you'd expect, that, that again, even through uh, the day and even into the evenings, uh, we have quite high numbers of people on the streets. And what's interesting is that um, in terms of the numbers of people moving on our streets, uh, right up until midnight, uh, people walking are the highest number of people moving around our streets, regardless of what mode uh, they're using. Um, and it's quite a very efficient way to move people. So this chart shows at the top the amount of space uh, that all those people uh, and vehicles moving around our streets uh, take up on our streets uh, and, uh, and, and the, the kind of share of people movement that happens as a result. So uh, this is 50% of people movement on our streets is people walking. They get 9% uh, of the street space. 19% of the people movement is cars and taxis and they get uh, use up about half uh, the street space. So perhaps not uh, the most equitable distribution uh, of space on our streets and certainly when we're thinking about uh, how as the city uh, grows we can use that uh, space as efficiently as possible. Uh, we need to be really thinking about the role of walking, cycling and uh, buses as the most efficient ways of moving people uh, around our streets. Uh, so all those people, not much share of the space. It's perhaps unsurprising again from the same uh, survey that 84% of people think our pavements are overcrowded. 60% uh, think that people walking are given too small a share of street space. Uh, and 65% uh, think that the needs of people walking uh, under, under prioritise. So a big focus uh, for the strategy is how we can uh, reverse these figures, give people more space, uh, address the overcrowding of our pavements and our crossings, uh, and, give much gr and, give, um, uh, and make walking the number one priority when we think about how our streets uh, are used. Um, and, uh, and, and the experience of walking on the streets is, of course, is really important to what people think about the city, uh, but it's really important from uh, a safety point uh, of view as well. Uh, so in um, 2016, there were 50 people uh, killed or seriously injured uh, on the city streets, but half of those uh, were people uh, walking. Uh, and you can see here that we've seen uh, an increase uh, over the last few years in terms of the number of people uh, killed and seriously injured when they're walking around the city um, you know the numbers of people on the streets increases uh, every year but it's a very worrying trend the one that we really kind of need to make some quite significant changes to the way our streets function and feel uh, to address that uh, and all of this just becomes more challenging uh, as the city grows 
Uh, obviously, Brexit may have an impact uh, on this, but we still expect the city to continue uh, growing over the coming decades. Uh, and if anything, all that Brexit will do is kind of perhaps slow the pace. Uh, but we're expecting about another 90,000 people to be working in the square mile uh, by uh, 2028. So all that competition for space is just going to increase. People will need to accommodate more people walking, but of course more people walking means more people working there, which means more people wanting sandwiches and everything else to go with it. So uh, more fun for me and my team. <laughs> uh, and the city's also uh, changing. We've already heard about uh, all these restaurants demanding um, uh, demanding uh, fresh goat delivered to them, but this is the, this is the Ned uh, Hotel. Uh, and increasingly, the city is somewhere that has much more of a nighttime economy. Most of the big office towers that go up will have at least one high-end uh, restaurant uh, in them at some point. So the city is changing, uh, and so that places, again, you know, different demands uh, on our streets. Uh, and increasingly, we, uh, we've always, always, of course, had the Barbican uh, as a cultural destination, but we're trying to uh, grow uh, the city's reputation and, uh, and, and increase awareness of it as a cultural uh, destination uh, as well. So in terms of the strategy, just briefly, um, we've recently just consulted on the, uh, the vision, aims uh, and outcomes uh, for that strategy, so the what do we want, um, before we finalise exactly how we'll get there to see what people want from it. Um, in terms of what we want, we obviously want to make sure that people can get uh, to the city safety and comfortably and, as, and that um, goods uh, can get there uh, reasonably easily uh, as well. Uh, and we want our streets, streets to be places that inspire so that people around the world uh, look to the city as a best practice example of how you design and manage streets. Uh, um, and also that when they're thinking about where they might want to invest or to work, uh, they see the city's public realm and its streets uh, as, a, as, as one of the selling points for the city. Uh, and the delight part is really all about what the day-to-day -day experience of using those streets is like and making it as easy and enjoyable as people. All of that is done uh, to support the growth of the city uh, and to make sure that it's an attractive place uh, for people to work, live in, study in, and visit. Um, there's 10 outcomes underneath that. Uh, one of them, of course, is related to uh, freight and servicing. Um, and uh, we're going into detail of this. I'm sure it's all familiar with you. We've touched on some of it already. But essentially, the way we think we will um, uh, make sure that the impacts of freight are minimised on Square Mile is... Uh, consolidation and we're looking at the moment about the role that we might need to play as a local authority uh, in consolidation retiming deliveries not just to overnight but outside of those particularly outside of those morning evening and lunchtime peaks uh, for people walking and then of course remoding uh, and how we can use cargo bikes uh, and smaller uh, electric vehicles for that last mile uh, of delivery um, but just to finish then I think um, so there's 10 outcomes. One of those is, is related to freight. But really, it's so important that we get that right because it has an impact on how we deliver all the rest of the outcomes. So it has an impact on what it's like to walk around the city and spend time on our streets, uh, what those vehicles are like and how many of them are uh, will, will help determine how clean and quiet uh, the city is. We've talked a bit already about how the transport technologies might come around but making sure that they actually uh, deliver benefits rather than bring more complications. Um, of course, there's huge safety elements and everything here. So um, it's really great to kind of hear the discussion that's here today because we're just finishing off the transport strategy now, so kind of helping us inform those proposals. But what I would say is, you know, we're keen to talk to the industry. We're keen to understand the challenges. We understand that freight in itself is complex and the food side of it is even more uh, complex. 
um, that you know the fresh fish deliveries is, is it's kind of become this mythical thing uh, that you know it's it's always you know, we can consolidate everything, but the chef needs to see the fish. Uh, so <laughs> that's fine. There'll probably always be some of that. But, you know, how can we uh, think imaginatively and think innovatively about how we can address some of these challenges and make sure that our last mile delivery hubs, for example, are uh, are at a standard where they work from a food hygiene point of view and everything. So, yeah, just to finish with a plea, I guess, of kind of keep in touch. If you've got ideas, we'd love to hear from you and talk to you. Uh, and, um, and, and I'm sure there'll be much more uh, discussions uh, to come. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. I was particularly interested in the bottom right-hand uh, box, to get back a slide, um, just thinking about emerging technologies. Yeah. Um, plans for pilots, trials, you know, drone landing pads. <laughs> what, what's up your sleeve? Uh, yeah, so there's a few things. In terms of the strategy, uh, the main thing is, uh, is the rules, because we don't really yeah. know what tech's coming. We don't know exactly when it's come and what the impact will be. But we do know that um, what we don't want it to do and what we would like it to do. So we're setting the rules for that, uh, including things like it shouldn't make uh, congestion any worse and it should help uh, reduce congestion. It should make, uh, shouldn't make our streets any less safe and should help make them safer. Um, drones is an interesting one. I'm a bit of a skeptic uh, <laughs> on drones. Uh, and at the moment, we're kind of, we don't think they've got a huge role to play in the city. A couple of reasons for that. One... Uh, if you have loads of them, it doesn't necessarily make for a very attractive environment for those people walking around underneath them. Two, there's all sorts of challenges with the, the microclimates around uh, full buildings uh, in particular. And there's a huge security aspect to it as well. So we kind of see a quite a specialist niche role for drones, which is probably more around uh, our services, emergency services and those kinds of things, rather than loads of them zipping around, making deliveries uh, and the like. Um, the kind of droids bit, uh, the things that runs on the pavements, we're definitely kind of trying to avoid that. Because one of our rules, again, is that, you know, the pavement is for people walking. We can't start filling it up. You know, we're trying to move, take as much stuff off it as possible that isn't um, people uh, walking around uh, or other things like uh, outdoor seating and stuff. So we don't want to start kind of cluttering it. We talk a lot about street clutter, but, you know, mobile street cluster, I suppose, you know, just because it's moving around. You know, we've got enough of a challenge with the OFO bikes uh, already at the moment, uh, let alone when um, everyone's kind of pizza is being delivered on a, uh, in one of those uh, Starship uh, things. So, yeah. Hamburger to the hand. Yeah. Uh, okay, questions from the floor for Bruce. And the microphone is coming at you. We just go to the three quarters to the front here. No, we're not. We're going three quarters of the back. Hi, it's Paul Suter from SIVA. Um, just reflecting back on the statistic on the growth in cycle uh, activity in, in the 18 years, um, excusing the pun, how much is driven by um, commuter journeys as opposed to uh, bicycle couriers? And we've seen a number of photo examples already. Yeah, I think most of it is, um, certainly for the city, is people commuting in uh, and out. We're getting increasing numbers of, um, of cycle couriers, but in terms of the overall numbers, they're relatively, uh, relatively small compared to the rest of it. I think what will be, what will be interesting with uh, the growth of cycling is it, it will continue to grow, I think, as a way of people getting into the city. It's more how it's then used as a way of moving people around the city uh, or to destinations by then increasingly with, um, the use of uh, cargo cycles. Um, for 
last mile deliveries uh, within the city uh, as well. As, yeah, we're only going to see more of it. And I think we want to facilitate that by trying to identify locations where we can establish last mile delivery hubs that can be the base for those um, operations. Hey, um, thank you very much for everyone for coming. Uh, and thanks in particular to the speakers and the panels. Um, I think if there's one conclusion we can come to from this event, it's that uh, the area of logistics and city logistics and what's happening to freight in cities is a really exciting and dynamic area, and there's a lot of exciting things happening. And I think if there's one thing I would say to the, the businesses here, it's, it, it's, it's a space worth watching and not just waiting until somebody pedestrianises the street in front of your stores or... Um, puts in an ultra-low emission ban that makes it more difficult for deliveries, but actually to look at some of the positive opportunities to make um, logistics more efficient. Um, we think that there is uh, a potential win-win, which shouldn't be naive, there have got to be compromises, but there is a potential win-win which makes cities more exciting and livable, but also maintains and perhaps improves the efficiency of supply chains as well, so that businesses aren't forced out of cities but can still thrive in cities. So that, that's really... Uh, the conclusion that I draw drew from the uh, from listening to the, sp the presentations and the speakers and uh, yeah thanks again everybody for coming and uh, please join us for a chat uh, afterwards. Thank you very much. Great. Well, I'll just round out by saying thanks again. Thanks to our um, hosts and uh, and sponsors, WSP and Siva. Uh, I'm particularly excited about the role um, uh, for cycling and of cycling. I'm a coach and run a BMX team and love bikes, um, so it's all about the bike for me. Uh, you may have heard that before as a throwaway comment from someone else who lost their seven Tour de France yellow jerseys, but um, uh, it really is uh, that, you know, that sort of last 100, 100 metres is becoming more and more interesting, the role of spaces in urban environments, the connectivity issues in more rural uh, locations, Ipswich and uh, North Devon and other places as well that are rural, there are others. Um, you know, those, those for me are the, are the really big challenges and opportunities. And I think that, you know, I keep reflecting back and I, I kind of feel lucky in some ways that, you know, I've, I've, I've graduated when I did and I've been doing the things I've been doing for the last 20 odd years. Um, we, we've, we've got some huge issues to, to deal with, whether it's plastics or air quality or, you know, congestion. Um, we've got some fantastic opportunities as well. You know, the Nürburgring lap record just does make me uh, quite excited. Um, and, and all of that technology and innovation coming at us, it's, the, the, for me, the really big challenge is making the bits that we need work well and avoid those unintended or sometimes intended uh, consequences that we might live to regret. And just getting the right, the right balance. We've got to make some mistakes to learn. And we've got to try some stuff to, uh, to learn. Um, but, you know, everything in, in measure and in its place. Uh, and I'm just really excited by, you know, the conversation we've had today. Um, what goes in, remember, has to come out again. Your point with reverse. Uh, one of my points and Lugano's uh, points is pet projects of, uh, of waste and recycling. You know, that, that what goes in does come out. And it's, it's really important that we, we think about all of those things in balancing the role of food service uh, and the impacts and opportunities around mobility and transportation.